7. The adjacent hills, and had effectually cut off communication by the main road, despite their numbers, they were afraid to strike. However, and lucky it was for the city that the leaders were not sufficiently trusted by their followers. Many of them pressed men men who had joined the rebelling ranks merely to save their own necks and their houses. At this time the Penfosart of mayor of the city demanded that the missionaries working among the Huamiao, and two lady workers paying a visit to that place, should return from Ximenkan 70 Li away, as he could not protect them in the country. A special messenger was dispatched, demanding instant departure, and in the dead of night a bitter wintry night, icy, dark, slippery, and cold these ladies came under cover to the city. They reached the mission premises without molestation. By this time a new Chuntai Brigadier General had arrived from the capital, having been sent as a man who could handle the situation successfully. He was a Liutaren, who had previously held office in the city, and whose cunning a Scotland Yard detective might envy. The rumors grew more and more serious, the Mandarins went all round the countryside endeavoring to pacify the people, and the foreigners could do nothing but sit tight through these most trying days. The suspense of being shut up in one's house during a time of trouble of this nature, hearing every rumor which lying tongues create, and unable to get at the facts, is far worse than being in the thick of things, although this would have at once been fatal. But one needs to have lived in China during such a time to understand the awful tension which riots occasion. The rioters were stationed as follows, 1. Whining, in Quechow, to the southeast 1.000 men to Kangti Hill. In Yunnan, to the south 1.000 men 3, several places around the city, to the west as far as the river of Golden Sand 1.000 men on March 13th the night attack was expected, breathless, the foreigners waited in their suspense, but it passed off without serious damage being done. On the Sunday, the missionaries, almost at their wits end with mingled fear and excitement, occasioned by the strain which weeks of anxiety must bring to the strongest feared whether their services would be got through in peace. Meetings were being held all around the city, and gradually the mandarins gained small successes. Prisoners miserable specimens of men fighting for they hardly knew what were captured and brought to the city. And, on March 16th, 16 human heads, thrown in one gruesome mass into a common basket, with a perm eyes gaping into the great unknown, hideous looking and bearing still the brutish stare of hysterical craving and morbid rage were carried by an armed squad of military to the Yaman. They made a ghastly picture when hung over the gate of the city to put the fear of death into the hearts of their brutal compatriots. The officials, hard-worked and themselves feeling the strain of the whole business, and incidentally fearful for the safety of their own heads, were perturbed all this time by rumors coming from whining, the mutineers of which were alleged to be the fiercest of the three bands. Up to now the officials had been playing a conciliating game. They had been trying vainly to pacify, but now they found that they had to prove their energies and their benevolence by acting the part of tyrants rather than of administrators of mercy, by warring rather than by peacemaking, by fighting and forcing rather than by conciliating and persuading. On Easter Tuesday, fighting took place on the main road to the north, when the Penfo and his men achieved a creditable success. The rebels almost to a man were taken, and among the prisoners was a girl who had been distributing the beans. A lovely damsel of eighteen, said to have been the fiancé of the leader of that band. Both her legs were to shot through and she was considerably mutilated, but although the Penfu thought this sufficient punishment, 
instructions came from the capital that she must die. She was accordingly taken outside the city and beheaded. This caused some consternation among the rebels, as the death of the girl was looked upon as an omen of direct misfortune. For a very long time she had been going around the country dropping beans into the ground outside any houses she came across. The superstition being that wherever a bean was dropped there in the very spot, perhaps at the very moment, for aught that we know, an invincible warrior would spring up. She had dropped some millions of beans, but the ranks were not swelled as a consequence. The Chuntai had also been out all night, and as men were captured so they were beheaded on the spot without mercy and their heads subsequently hung outside the city gates. The headman of a small village some forty li from the city succeeded in capturing one of the leaders, and great credit was due to him, but soon the leader was rescued again by his followers, who then brutally killed and mutilated the body of the headman, causing him to undergo the ignominy of having his tongue and his heart cut out. Fighting was going on everywhere, and by the end of March things were at their height. The fact that rain was badly needed tended only to aggravate the situation and that lustrous comet made things worse. Day by day miserable processions brought the wounded into the city, and the last day of the month, taken by sudden fright and almost getting out of hand, the panic-stricken people raised the cry that the rebels were marching direct for the city gates, through the capital tactics adopted by the mandarins. However, this was prevented, but, on the following day, the chapel belonging to the United Methodist Mission at an outstation was burned to the ground and the houses of the people raised and looted. The caretaker, a faithful Huamiao convert, was taken, stripped of his clothing, and threatened with an awful death if he did not betray the foreigners. He refused manfully to divulge any information whatsoever, and was on the point of being sacrificed. When the Chuntai came unexpectedly upon the scene with his military, he released the Miao captured 36 rebels, killed 16 more where they stood, and carried away many of their horses and the dreaded boxer flag around which the men rallied, and now comes the smartest thing I heard of throughout the rebellion, a man named Lee was the most dreaded of the trio of rebel chiefs, a man of marvelous strength, and who seemed to be able to fascinate his men and get them to do anything he wished and Liu, the Chuntai, set himself the task of capturing him, disguising himself in the garb of a peddler, Liu went out towards Li's camp, and met three spies on the lookout for a possible clue to the foreigners, they asked him where the Chuntai was and all about him, declaring that if he did not tell them all he knew they would take him to Li, and that he would then lose his head, just behind were a few of Liu's best soldiers, strolling up quite casually as if they knew least in the world of what was going on, they made their arrest, and clapped the handcuffs on them before their captives knew it. Leo ordered that to be beheaded immediately, which was done, and the other man was kept to show where Lee's camp was and where Lee himself was hiding, and in this way Lee the Invincible was captured also. This was the master stroke of the situation. Lee was brought back to the city with many other prisoners and a few heads, guarded by a strong body of the military. Almost simultaneously, Wang, one of the other rebel chiefs, was captured and at dusk one evening Lee was put to death by the slow process, afraid that if he were taken outside the city his followers might possibly recapture him. He was murdered outside the chief Yaman, about ten hacks being necessary by process adopted to sever the head from the body. Only two men have been put to death inside the walls since the city of Jiaotong was built, over two hundred years ago, after death had taken place. Lee was served in the same way as he had served the village headman. 
and his heart and his tongue were taken from his body. One was killed in the usual way, and his head placed in a frame on the city gate, and so there died two of the bravest men who have headed rebellions in this part of country of late years. Both were handsome fellows, of magnificent physique and indaunted courage, worthy of fighting for a better cause. It seems so strange that two such men should have had to die in the very bloom of life, when every strong sinew and drop of blood must have rebelled at such premature dissolution, and by a death more hideous than imagination can depict or speech describe, just at a time in China's awakening when such fellows might have made for the uplifting of their country, and they died because they hated the foreigner. After further desultory fighting, the remaining leader, losing heart, fled into Chao province and for a time was allowed to wander away, but later, a sum of a thousand tales was offered for him, dead or alive, and I have no doubt of the reward proving too great a bait for his followers, he has probably been given up, Q in the month of May the Meow people rose to prolong the riding, but their efforts did not come to much, although guerrilla warfare was prolonged for several weeks, and British subjects were not allowed to travel over the main road beyond Tong Shuan Fu for some time after, Indeed, as I write July 1st, 1910, permission for the missionaries to move about is still withheld. Then, following the rebellion, rumors spread all over the province to the effect that the foreigners were on the lookout for children, and were buying up as many as they could get at enormous prices to cheat the railway to Yuan Manfu, which by this time had been opened to the public. Daily word are little children brought to the missionaries and offered for sale. Child stealing became common. The greatest unrest prevailed again. Members of the Christian churches suffered persecution, and adherents kept at a safe distance. Scholars pursued the mission schools. Foreigners cautiously kept within their own premises as much as they could. Mission work was at a standstill, and all looked once more grave enough. Two women, caught in the act of stealing children at Jiaotong, were taken to the Yaman, hung in cages for a time as a warning to others, and then made to walk through the streets shouting, don't steal children as I have, don't steal children as I have. If they stopped yelling, soldiers scourged them. A man was lynched in the public streets in that city for stealing a child, and only by the adoption of the most stringent measures, which in England would be considered barbaric, were the mandarins able successfully to deal with the rumors and the trouble thereby caused. Even far away down on the Capitol Road, children ran from me, and mothers, catching sight of me, would cover up their little ones and run away from me behind barred doors, so that the foreigner should not get them. This latter trouble was felt pretty well throughout the length and breadth of Yuan Man, and it must have been very disappointing to Christian missionaries who had been working around the districts of Tong Fu and Tong Fu for over 20 years, and had got into close contact with scores of men and women, to see these very people taking away their children so that they should not be bought up by the very missionaries whose ministrations they had listened to for years. In course of time, things settled down again. But at the time my manuscript leaves me for the publisher the danger zone has not been greatly reduced. In concluding my few remarks on this serious outbreak, the like of which it is to be hoped will not be seen again in this province. It is only fair to chronicle the excellent behavior of the Chinese officials and of the Viceroy of Yuan Man in dealing with the situation. Although he is not, I believe, generally liked by the people as their ruler, Li Chin Shi did all he could to quell the riots speedily, and saw to it that all the officials in whose districts the rebellion was raging, and who made blunders during its progress, were degraded in rank, 
it is difficult for Europeans thoroughly to grasp the situation. From Jiaotong to Yuanmanfu, the viceregal seat, is twelve days hard going, and all communication was done by telegraph seemingly easy enough, but one must not discount the slow Chinese methods of doing things. Most of the troops were twelve days away, and in China in backward Yuanmen especially to mobilize a thousand men and march them over mountains a fortnight from your base is not a thing to be done at a moment's notice. By the time they would arrive, it might have been possible for all the foreigners to have been massacred and their premises demolished, especially as the exits were blocked on all sides, but no time was lost and no pains were saved, and although the Jiaotong foreign residents, who suffered in suspense more than most missionaries are called upon to suffer, may differ with me in this opinion. I believe that not one of the officials who took part in endeavors to keep the riots from assuming more actually dangerous proportions could have done more than was done. If a man neglected his duty he lost his button, and he deserved nothing else. In Mr. P. O'Brien Butler, the able British Consul General, the British subjects had the greatest confidence. He might have erred in having declined from harassing the Chinese for in office to grant permission and protection to Britishers who wished to travel after the leaders of the rebellion had been captured. But he undoubtedly erred on the right side. An unfortunate incident for the United Methodist missionaries was the fact that the ref, Charles Stanford, who was sent out by the connection to visit the whole of the mission fields, was able to come only so far as Tong Shuanfu and was forced to return to Europe without having seen any of the magnificent work among the Huamiao. After my manuscript went forward to my publishers, permission to travel and protection were granted to British subjects again on the main road leading up to the Yangtze Valley. The author was the first Britisher to go from Tong Shuanfu to Zhao Tongfu, and as I write, as late as the middle of July, 1910. I am of the opinion that it is unwise to travel over this road for a long time to come, unless it is absolutely imperative to do so. At Kangti I had considerable trouble in getting a place to sleep, and I was glad when I had passed Tawin, at the invitation of missionaries working among them. I then spent some months in residence and travel in my island, and only regret that an extended account of my experiences is not possible. Footnotes, footnote P, this Liu was a remarkable man. Quite unlike the average Mandarin, he got the name of Liu Mopang, a disrespectful term, meaning that he was fond of using the stick. On a journey towards Jiaotong, some years ago, he went on ahead of his retinue of men and horses, and arriving at an inn at Tong Shuanfu, asked the Tarsifu the general factotum for the best room, and proceeded to walk into it. No you don't, yelled the Tarsifu, that's reserved for Liu Mopang, and you're not to go in there. After some time Liu's men arrived, and calling one or two, he said, Take this man, pointing to the surprised Tarsifu, and give him a sound thrashing. He stood by and saw the whacking administered. After which he said, That's for speaking disrespectfully of a Mandarin. Then, give him a thousand cash. Adding, That's for knowing your business. Some years ago Liu was the means of saving the life of the late Mr. Lin mentioned later in this book. At the time he was British consul at Tenchu, when there was fighting down in the south of Yuanmen with the W.A.s, E.J.D. Chapter X the tribes of northeast Yuanmen, and mission work among them men who came through Yuanmen 20 years ago wrote of its doctors and its medicines, its poverty and its infanticide, there seemed little else to speak of, although the tribes were here then and in a wronger state even then than they are at the present time little was known about them 
and men had not yet developed the cult of putting their opinions upon this most absorbing topic into print. Today, however, scores of men in Europe are eagerly devouring every line of copy they can get hold of bearing upon this fascinating ethnological study. Missionaries are plagued by inquiries for information respecting the tribes of western China, and it is a curious feature of the situation that, with each article or book coming before the public contradiction follows contradiction, and very few people not even those resident in the areas and working among the tribes can agree absolutely upon any given points in their data. The numerous non-Chinese tribes I met in China formed one of the most interesting, and at the same time most bewildering, features of my travel and I can quite agree with Major H.R. Davies, or who tackles the tribe question with considerable ability in his book on Yuan Man, when he says that it is safe to assert that in hardly any part of the world is there such a large variety of languages and dialects as are to be found in the country which lies between Assam and the eastern border of Yuan Man, and in the Indo-Chinese countries to the north of that region. The reason for it is generally ascribed to the physical characteristics of the country the high mountain ranges and deep, swift-flowing rivers, which have brought about the differences in customs and language and the innumerable tribal distinctions so perplexing to him who would put himself in the position of an inquirer into Indo-Chinese ethnology. I know more than one gentleman in Yuan Man at the present moment having under preparation manuscript upon this subject intended for subsequent publication and I feel sure that their efforts will add valuable information to the ultra-limited supply now obtainable. In the meantime, I print my own impressions, I should like it to be known here, however, that I do not in any way whatsoever put myself forward as an authority on the question, I had not, at the time this was written, laid myself out to make any study of the subject, but the fact that I have lived in Northeast Yunnan for a year and a half, and have traveled from one end of the province to the other, in addition to having come across tribes of people in Sichuan, may justify me in the eyes of the reader for placing on record my own impressions as a general contribution to this most exciting discussion. I also lived at Ximenkan mentioned in the last chapter, among the Huamiao for several months, traveled fairly considerably in the unsurveyed hill country where they live, and am the only man, apart from two missionaries, who has ever been over that wonderful country lying to the extreme northeast of Yunnan. One trip I made, extending over three weeks will ever remain with me as a memorable time, but I regret that I have no space in this volume for even the merest reference to my journey. Some of my friends in China might say sarcastically that mankind is destined to arrive at years of discretion, and that I should have known better than to include in my book anything, however well-founded, of a nature tending to continue the wordy strife touching this vexed question of mission work, and that no matter how strikingly set forth, this is an old and obsolete story fit only to be finally done with. It is for such to bear with me in what I shall say. There are thousands of men in the West who are entirely ignorant of men in China other than the ordinary Han Ren, and if I enlighten them ever so little, then this chapter will have served an admirable end. In Northeast Yunnan the tribes I came most in contact with were, either Miao or Miaozha, as the Chinese call them, or the Mong or Hanau, as they call themselves, Iidipian or Ipian as the Chinese call them, or the Nusu or Ngosu, as they call themselves. Probably the Nusu tribes are what Major Davies calls the Lolo group in his third division of the great Tibeto-Burman family, but I merely suggest it, as it strikes me that the other branches of that group, including the Lisu, the Lohu, and the Wo and I, 
seem to be descendants of a larger group, of which the new predominate in numbers, language, and customs. However, this by the way, it may not be common knowledge that in most parts of the Chinese empire, even today, there are tribes of people, essentially non-Chinese, who still rigidly maintain their independence, governed by their own native rulers as they were probably 40 centuries ago, long before their kingdoms were annexed to China proper. There are white bones and black bones, noses long and flattened, eyes straight and oblique, swarthy faces, faces yellow and white, coal black and brown hair, and many other physical peculiarities differentiating one tribe from another. In many instances, these tribes, conquered slowly by the encroaching Chinese during the long and tedious term of centuries marking the growth of the Chinese empire to its present immensity, are allowed to maintain their social independence under their own chiefs who are subject to the control of the government of China which means that excessive taxation is paid to the Yaman functionary, who extorts money from anybody and everybody he can get into his clutches, and then gives a free hand. Others, in a further state of civilization, have been gradually absorbed by the Chinese and are now barely distinguishable from the Han Ren the Chinese, and others, again, adopting Chinese dress, customs and language would give the traveler a rough time of it were he to suggest that they are any but pure Chinese. To the ethnological student, it is obvious that so soon as the Chinese have tyrannized sufficiently and in their own inimitable way preyed upon these feudal landlords enough to warrant their lands being confiscated, reducing a tribe to a condition in which, far removed from districts where company tribesmen live, they have no status, the aboriginals throw in their lot gradually with the Chinese and to all intents and purposes become Chinese in language, customs, trade and life. This absorption by the Chinese of many tribes, stretching from the Burmese border to the eastern parts of Sichuan, whilst an interesting study, shows that the onward march of civilization in China will sweep all racial relics from the face of this great awakening empire. But at the same time there are many branches of the tribal family some found as far west as British Burma and all more or less scattered and disorganized as the result of this silent oppression going on through the years, who still are ambitious of preserving their independent isolation, particularly in sparsely populated spheres far removed from political activity. So remote are the districts in which these principalities are found, that the Chinese themselves are entirely ignorant of the characteristics of these tribes. They say of one tribe which is scattered all over China far west that they all have tails, and of another tribe that the men and women have two faces, and into the official records published by the imperial government the grossest inaccuracies creep concerning the origin of these peoples. Yunnan and Sichuan and a great part of Quechua in the main still untouched by the increased taxation necessary to provide revenue to uphold the reforms brought about by the forward movement in various parts of the empire are where the aboriginal population is most evident. This part of the empire might be called the ethnological garden of tribes and various races in various stages of uncivilization. These secluded mountain areas, their unaltered conditions still telling forth the story of the world's youth have been the cradle and the deathbed of nations, of vigorous and ambitious tribes bent on conquest and a career of glory. The Miao of the Miao, with its various sections, we know a good deal. Their real home has been pretty finally decided to be in Quechua province, and they probably in former times extended far into Hunan, the Chinese of these provinces at the present time having undoubtedly a good deal of Miao blood in their veins. They are comparatively recent arrivals in Yunnan. 
but are gradually extending farther and farther to the west, maintaining their language and their dress and customs. I personally found them as far west as 30 miles beyond Telifu, a little off the main road, but Major Davies found them far up on the Tibetan border. He says, the most westerly point that I have come across them is the neighborhood of Chanyolat, 23 degrees 40, long, 98 degrees 45, through central and northern Yuanmen they do not seem to exist, but they reappear again to the north of this in western Sichuan, where there are a few villages in the basin of the Yalun River Lat, 28 degrees 15, long, 101 degrees 40, the major was evidently ignorant of this Miao district of Jiaotong to the northeast of the province, stretching three days from Tongshuanfu right away on to Jiaotong, in a north line, Miao villages are met with fairly well the whole way, then, three days from Tongshuanfu, in a northwesterly direction, we come to the Miao village of Shan, and then, striking southwest, through country absolutely unsurveyed part of the way, Sapu Shan is met, this last place is the headquarters of the China Inland Mission, where, at the present rate of progress, one might modestly estimate that in 20 years there will be no less than a million people receiving Christian teaching. These are not all Miao. However, there are besides Lokei, Lisu, and many other tribes with which we have no concern at the present moment, so that it may be seen that from Yuanmanfu, the capital, in areas on either side of the main road leading up to the bifurcation of the Yangtze below Suifu, in a long, Narrow neck running between the river of golden sand and the Kuechao border. Miao are met with constantly. And then, of course, over the river, in Sichuan, they are met with again. And in Kuechao, farther west, we have their real home. It is a far cry from Miao land to Malaysia. But as I get into closer contact with the Miao people, the more do I find them in many common ways of everyday customs and points of character akin to the Malays and the Sakai the jungle hill people of the Malay Peninsula, among whom I have traveled. Their modes of living contain many points in common. Ethnologists probably may smile at this assertion, the same as I who have lived among the Miao, have smiled at a good deal which has come from the pens of men who have not. In this area there are two great branches of the Miao race, Idahua Miao the flowery or white Miao. I Idaho Miao the Black Miao. Many photographs of the Hua Miao are reproduced in this volume. The latter are considered as the superior of the two sections, speak a different tongue, and differ more or less widely in their methods, dress and customs, a study of which would lead one into a lifetime of interminable disquisitions, at the end of which one would be little more enlightened. Those who wish to study the question of interracial differences of the Miao are referred to Mr. Clark's Kuei Chao and Yuanman provinces. Prince Henri d'Orleans to Tonkin Oxins, and Mr. Baber's works. Major Davies also gives some new information concerning this hill people, and is generally correct in what he says, but in his, as in all the books which touch upon the subject, the language tests very considerably, in Tong and the surrounding districts. For instance, the traveler would be unable to make any progress with the vocabulary which the major has compiled. I was unable to make it tally with the spoken language of the people and append a table showing the differences in the phonetic and I do it with all respect to Major Davies. I ought to add that this is the language of the northeast corner of Yuanman, that of Major Davies is taken from page 339 of his book. He says that the words given by him will not be found to correspond in every case with those in the Miao vocabulary in the pocket of the cover of his book, and some have been taken from other Miao dialects. However, 
the comparison will be interesting, N-E-U-N man English word major Davies is meow meow man human being tanung, tam mentani, sun to, ntong tu, I come wa, my ma, hand apit, count off, ngon you, pig tenpa, dog clee, kale clay, chicken kale, cakey, silver nyani, river tiongli, patty blangli, cooked rice nalvie, treamed on cow, fire to tay, wine qua, chiang ta, earth ta tea, sun no, nanu, moon hlali, big low low, come ta ta, gom on now, drink ho how, one a e i h, two a o a, three pi, potius z, four p e i, plu glau, five pop a, six jo glau, seven xiang, i xiang, eight e, yikia, nine kiochia, ten shit kale, the miao language was until a year or two ago only spoken, it was never written, and no one ever dreamed that it could be written. At the time of the great Miao revival, when thousands of Miao made a raid on the mission premises at Jiaotong, and implored the missionaries to come and teach them, it was found absolutely necessary that the language should be reduced to writing, and the whole of this extremely creditable work fell to the ref, Samuel Pollard, who may be characterized as the pioneer of this Christianizing movement in Northeast Yunnan, in reducing the language to writing. However, considerable difficulty was complicated by the presence of tomes, so well known to all students of Chinese, itself said to be an invention of the devil, tomes, 